Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 10th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Skarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel concluded that a homeowner is the employer of an uninsured licensed contractor's injured worker. In this case, Kenneth Harlan was employed by Affordable Plumbing and Reuter for six or seven months until he was injured while performing plumbing work at a new construction project in Torrance, California, while capping a sewage pipe that was placed in a three-foot trench. He was paid in cash depending on the type of job. Hiroshi Tange was the homeowner who owned the property in Torrance and at the time of his injury had a homeowner's policy of insurance with farmers which provided for workers' compensation coverage. Affordable Plumbing had a contractor's license but was uninsured for workers' compensation. The homeowner testified that he had no recollection of seeing Harlan work at the property at any time and testified that he did not hire a plumbing contractor and that the plumbing work was done by his brother-in-law, a handyman, who was not a licensed contractor. But the homeowner testified that he could not recall who dug the trench and laid the pipe to the sewer, which was being kept by Harlan when he was injured. The work comp judge found that Mr. Harlan was an employee of the homeowner at the time of the injury. Farmers Insurance and the homeowner, Hiroshi Tanj, petitioned for reconsideration, which was denied in the panel decision of Harlan versus Affordable Plumbing. The work comp judge noted that the type of work being performed, plumbing, requires a license in good standing in California, and that a contractor's license is suspended as a matter of law in the absence of workers' compensation insurance, as provided in both the Labor and Business and Professions Code. The burden of proof on the issue of employment lies with the party having the affirmative of the issue, which in this case was Mr. Harlan, and he must prove the elements of employment by a preponderance of the evidence. But the Labor Code goes on to provide that there is a rebuttable presumption that a worker performing services for which a license is required or who is performing such services for a person who is required to have a contractor's license is an employee rather than an independent contractor. The work comp judge noted that the testimony of Mr. Harland had a greater likelihood of truth than that of the homeowner, and then concluded that affordable plumbing was doing work which required an active license and that their license was suspended at the time due to the lack of workers' compensation insurance coverage. And thus, the employee of the unlicensed contractor, Mr. Harland, was presumed to be the employee of the person or persons who benefited by his labor and has control over the project, which was the homeowner. And the WCB panel agreed and concluded that there was no evidence of considerable substantiality that would warrant rejecting the work comp judge's credibility determinations. And in another WCAB panel decision, it affirmed a workers' compensation judge's discretion to deny a permanent disability overpayment credit made by the state fund. 
In this case, the injured worker, Michael Ramraka, was employed as a correctional officer by the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation when he filed three applications for adjudication of claims. Two of the cases were specific injuries and the third a continuous trauma, and benefits were paid on all three cases that all involved internal medical injury issues. In one of the three cases, the state fund wanted overpayment credit or for nearly $13,900 toward what was ordered in the second case, and for $14,000 paid from what was paid in the first to the third case. So the main issue for the work comp judge to decide was whether or not the state fund was entitled to take this credit, and in both cases, the work comp judge denied allowing them credit because they failed to timely file a petition for credit pursuant to WZAB rules. Reconsideration was granted in one of the two cases, in the case of Ram Raka versus State of California Department of Corrections. The WCB panel noted that the state fund did file a petition for credit that complied with the rules, but only on the day of trial. It said that the better practice would have been to submit a petition for credit as soon as a dispute arises. However, the rule includes nothing that authorizes or requires disallowance of a credit for failure to comply with the rule's requirements. So, the state fund's failure to timely comply with WCAB Rule 10555A was not a basis for the judge disallowing its claim for credit. But the panel went on to say that the work comp judge is correct that the determination of whether to allow defendant any credit for benefits voluntarily paid in error is within the WCAB's discretionary authority. The board may consider a weighing of the equities between the parties, as well as whether the applicant's compensation award will be seriously impaired if credit is allowed. Here, the state fund was in control of the manner in which it paid permanent disability indemnity benefits to the applicant. So, to the extent to which they, their actions resulted in significant overpayment of permanent disability indemnity, was the defendant's responsibility. And the balance of equities between the parties was not the only factor to be considered. Defendant's payment of permanent disability indemnity for the two specific injuries was consistent with the intent of the labor code to encourage employers to voluntarily pay compensation and where appropriate to obtain a subsequent reduction of compensation ultimately determined to be due the employee. So, the WCAB did amend the work comp judge's decision to allow the defendant credit in one of the two cases. However, the administration of benefits in the other case resulted in a credit of almost $14,000 on a permanent disability award of nearly $68,000 which represents an approximate 20% curtailment of his permanent disability indemnity benefits. They concluded that that resulted in a material impairment of his permanent disability award in the second case. Thus, the petition for reconsideration in that case 
was denied. And in an employment law case, SEIU United Healthcare Workers West is a healthcare justice union of more than 100,000 healthcare workers, patients, and healthcare activists. Last year, this union filed 10 ballot initiatives in 10 different cities. And this year, the union proposes a ballot measure in Los Angeles City to limit compensation for executives, managers, and administrators of privately owned hospitals and other healthcare facilities in Los Angeles to no more than the total compensation for the President of the United States, which currently is $450,000 a year. The City of Los Angeles is in the process of counting and validating the signatures submitted for the ballot initiative, which is known as the Limit Excessive Healthcare Executive Compensation Ordinance. The union claims that CEOs at three Los Angeles hospitals make in excess of $1 million a year, pointing out that the CEO of Providence Holy Cross Medical Center made $1.3 million in 2019. The CEO of Children's Hospital Los Angeles made $1.5 million in 2020. And the CEO of Cedars-Sinai was paid an astounding $5.7 million in 2020. The proposed limitation would apply to any executive, manager, or administrator at privately owned hospitals in Los Angeles, as well as skilled nursing facilities, residential care facilities, and all facilities within integrated health systems. The $450,000 cap is inclusive of all compensation, including salary, paid time off, bonuses, incentive payments, and lump sum cash payments. The California Hospital Association filed a lawsuit challenging the measure, arguing that the U.S. president earns more than $450,000 per year when travel expenses, discretionary funds, and residents in the White House are factored in, and cited calculations by its consultant who concluded that the total combination for the president is more than $1.2 million. Thus, the association claims that the alleged numerical mismatch means the ballot measure petition contained calculated untruths that misled voters who were asked to sign it, and it is calling for the courts to block the initiative from appearing on the ballot. But a Los Angeles judge denied the challenge from the California Hospital Association at an April 4th hearing. And in another employment law case, it was held that a co-employee named as a defendant in a tort action can exercise the employer's arbitration rights and demand that the case against him be arbitrated. The plaintiff, Ma Na Tom, worked for KMS Automotive Incorporated doing business as Browning Mazda of Alhambra. He began working at the dealership after signing a number of employment-related documents and forms, including an agreement to arbitrate. Three years after commencing employment, Tom filed a first amended complaint against the dealership, and Adrian Hernandez, a dealership employee, 
that depicted the dealership as a racially and sexually charged environment in which Tom and the other Asian employees and customers were subjected to harassing, discriminatory, and retaliatory acts. And Tom alleged that Hernandez drugged and raped her on multiple occasions, and the dealership did not take appropriate action in response to her complaints. Seven causes of action were asserted against the dealership alone, and five causes of action were alleged against both the dealership and Mr. Hernandez, and there were no separate causes of action asserted solely against Hernandez. The dealership filed a motion to compel arbitration, and Hernandez filed a joinder to the dealership's motion, but the court denied the dealership's motion to compel arbitration. The Court of Appeal reversed the court's denial of the motion to compel arbitration and directed the court to order the parties to arbitration in the unpublished case of Tom versus KMS Automotive. One of the issues on appeal was Tom's claim that Hernandez was not the counterparty to her arbitration agreement with the employer, and she had no arbitration agreement with him. So he should not so she should not be compelled to arbitrate her claims with him. But the Court of Appeal said that whether as an agent or under the doctrine of equitable estoppel, the law permits Hernandez, a non-signatory to the arbitration agreement, to compel Tom to arbitrate her claims against him. Tom's claims against Hernandez for sexual assault, harassment, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and unfair business practices are intimately founded in and intertwined with the employment relationship she had with the dealership. So, there is no question that they fall within the scope of the arbitration agreement. Tom's arguments present a limited view of the applicable case law and ignore the broad wording of the arbitration agreement here. The equitable estoppel doctrine prevents Tom from avoiding arbitration. When her claims against Mr. Hernandez, even the tort claims, are inextricably intertwined with her claims against the dealership, all of which arise from and relate to the contractual employment relationship governed by the arbitration agreement. The arbitration agreement signed by Tom covered any and all claims between Tom and the dealership or its employees arising from, related to, or having any relationship or connection whatsoever with Tom's employment by or with the dealership, whether sounding in tort, contract, statute, or equity, including without limitation any claims of discrimination, harassment, or retaliation, including claims under FIHA. The court also noted that a recent federal law entitled Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act of 2021 amends the Federal Arbitration Act to prohibit employers from requiring employees to resolve sexual harassment and sexual assault claims through private arbitration unless the employee, after the claim arises, voluntarily elects to participate in arbitration. But this law was not in effect when the trial court made its decision or at the time of the alleged acts, and no party argues that the law has retroactive effect. However, the dissenting opinion in the case discusses this new legislation and his views of the policies behind it.
However, the majority declined to adopt that position, articulated in the dissent, which in effect attempted to impose the new legislation in this and other similar cases by judicial fiat. And contrary to the expressed terms of the legislation regarding the limits of its retroactive application. And now our crime report. Giselle Thao Nguyen is a pharmacist who resides in Huntington Beach, California, and she is the sole owner of Natico Pharmacy, a community pharmacy operated on Westminster Avenue in Garden Grove. Natico Pharmacy ceased operating in December 2018. The United States government alleged that Nguyen fraudulently submitted claims to the Medicare program for prescription medications that were never dispensed to beneficiaries. The United States alleged that inventory records showed that Natico Pharmacy did not purchase enough of these medications from wholesale distributors to fill all of the prescriptions it billed to Medicare. Nguyen has agreed to pay nearly $4 million back to the government to resolve allegations that she fraudulently billed the Medicare program for medications that were never dispensed. According to the California Board of Pharmacy Records, her license status at this time remains clear. Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General, who is head of the Justice Department Civil Division, said the federal government will hold accountable those who seek to defraud these programs, including by billing for goods or services that they did not provide, and that the investigation and resolution of this matter illustrates the government's emphasis on combating health care fraud. And in regulatory news, National Nurses United, with nearly 225,000 members nationwide, is the largest union and professional association of registered nurses in U.S. history. In 2009, California Nurses Association, National Nurses Organizing Committee, played a lead role in bringing state nursing associations across the nation together into one national organization, National Nurses United. At its founding convention, National Nurses United adopted a call for action to counter what it called the national assault by the healthcare industry on patient care conditions and standards for nurses and to promote a unified vision of collective action for nurses. So this month, nurses across California are applauding the introduction of AB 1156, authored by Assemblymember Mia Banta and sponsored by the California Nurses Association into the California legislature. The organization held a press conference about the proposed law at the Kaiser Permanente Oakland Medical Center. If passed, the presumptive eligibility bill would automatically provide workers' compensation to nurses and other health care workers for a variety of injuries and illnesses. The association says this legislation, if passed, would help increase the retention of skilled nurses in California hospitals. The author of the proposed law claimed the nurses on the job injuries such as MRSA, methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus, respiratory diseases, and physical injuries are not presumed to be related to the job. 
But AB 1156 will change that and ensure that nurses are treated with the same respect, dignity, and care they deserve and show patients every single day. If passed in its current form, AB 1156 would define injury for a hospital employee who provides direct patient care in an acute care hospital to include infectious diseases, cancer, musculoskeletal diseases, post-traumatic stress disorder, and respiratory diseases, and would include coronavirus disease and its variants, among other conditions, in the definitions of infectious and respiratory diseases. This bill would create rebuttable presumptions that these injuries arose out of and in the course of the employment, and would extend these presumptions for specified time periods after the hospital employee's termination of employment. And in medical news, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, commonly known as HIPAA, is a federal law signed by President Clinton. Congress passed this landmark law to protect the privacy of health care data and to promote more standardization and efficiency in the healthcare industry. It was the expectation at the time that with the advancement of technology, electronic health records would rapidly roll out, allowing health practitioners easier access to patients' health information across unrelated treatment ecosystems. Now, 26 years after passage of HIPAA, it is obvious that this expectation has yet to be realized in California workers' compensation and in other healthcare ecosystems. Medical records and workers' compensation are not that portable, and photocopy services are commonly used to physically photocopy records, which are transmitted across the industry often in the form of physical paper. And in another ecosystem, the Veterans Administration has been working to improve the sharing of veteran health information by implementing a new $16 billion electronic health record, or EHR system, which is the software that stores health information and tracks all aspects of patient care for veterans. In addition to being shared across VA medical records, the new EHR system is also the same one used by the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security's U.S. Coast Guard, and participating community health care providers. Back in May 2018, the VA awarded Cerner Corporation a contract to replace its current EHR systems with a new EHR system based on the same commercial off-the-shelf platform currently being deployed by the Department of Defense. Cerner Corporation is an American supplier of health information technology services, devices, and hardware. And as of February 2018, its products were in use at more than 27,000 facilities around the world. The company had more than 29,000 employees globally, with over 13,000 in Kansas City, Missouri, its headquarters. Oracle Corporation announced an agreement to buy the company for about $28.3 billion in December 2021, and that deal closed in the following June. But the VA Technology Initiative does not seem to be going along quite as well as it had been planned. 
MilitaryTimes.com reported that Veterans Affairs officials are delaying the rollout of their new electronic health record system to sites in Michigan amid amid continued uh, concerns about the safety and reliability of the software. And this is just the latest setback for the embattled program. The delay is the latest in a series of setbacks for the 10-year, $16 billion health records overhaul project launched by President Donald Trump back in 2017. And only five of the VA's 170-plus medical sites have begun using the software. And new deployments have been delayed for months amid concerns with the new system. In the last few weeks, lawmakers in the House and Senate have introduced a series of legislative proposals to delay future deployments until VA officials can verify that certain patient safety, staff training, and software usability standards have been reached. Several Republican lawmakers have also publicly supported abandoning the project, questioning whether the system can ever be fully functional. VA and Oracle Cerner have insisted that it can work and that the move is needed to bring veterans' medical files onto the same platform as the Defense Department's records. VA officials are currently reviewing their contract with Oracle Cerner with an eye toward renewing it for the final five years of the program. The Joint Commission accredits and certifies more than 22,000 healthcare organizations and programs in the United States and is the nation's oldest and largest standards-setting and accrediting body in healthcare. The Joint Commission created a Sentinel event policy in 1996 to help healthcare organizations that experience serious adverse events to improve safety. Under this policy, the Joint Commission's Office of Quality and Patient Safety assists healthcare organizations in conducting comprehensive systemic analyses to learn from what it calls these sentinel events. And to that end, the Joint Commission has maintained an associated sentinel event database with de-identified and aggregate data. According to the latest 2022 annual report released on April 4th, in 2022, the Joint Commission received 1,441 reports of sentinel events. And the number of reported Sentinel events increased by 19% compared to the year before, and 88% of the reported Sentinel events occurred in a hospital setting. Patient falls was the most commonly reported Sentinel event in 2022, as it was in previous years, and falls have been the leading Sentinel event type reviewed since 2019. There were 611 sentinel events classified as patient falls in 2022, representing a 27% increase from 2021. Of these patient falls, 5% resulted in death, and 70% resulted in severe harm to the patient. The remaining leading categories of sentinel events were delay in treatment, 6%. Unintended retention of foreign object, 6%. Wrong surgery, 6%. And suicide, 5%. 
Contributing causes to delays in treatment included no or inadequate staff-to-staff communication of critical information, staff lacking competency to recognize abnormal clinical signs, and policies not being followed, such as observation rounds. Sentinel events classified as unintended retention of foreign objects continued to decline with 88 reported in 2022. Wrong surgeries, including surgeries or invasive procedures that are performed at the wrong site or on the wrong patient, or that are the wrong procedure for a patient, and there were 85 Sentinel events classified as wrong surgeries in 2022. Of these, a majority were surgeries or invasive procedures performed at the wrong site, 65% of them. There were 73 sentinel events classified as suicide in 2022. Of these, 55% occurred off-site within 72 hours of discharge from an accredited healthcare organization. 40% occurred in an inpatient setting, and 4% while in the emergency department. Death by ligature was the leading means by which a patient died by suicide, followed by gunshot, and then by jumping from heights. When analyzing the root cause of sentinel events, communication breakdowns continue to be the leading factor contributing to these sentinel events. And according to Fair Health's monthly telehealth regional tracker, National telehealth utilization increased 7.3% in January 2023. This is the third straight month of growth in national health care utilization, a trend that began last November. Telehealth utilization also increased in January in all four U.S. Census regions. From December 2022 to January 2023, audio-only telehealth utilization decreased nationally, and in every region. In January 2023, the number one diagnosis made by way of asynchronous telehealth, which is telehealth in which data are stored and forwarded, varied across regions. Nationally and in the South, it was acute respiratory diseases and infections. In the Northeast and Midwest, it was mental health conditions. And in the West, it was encounters for screening. Hypertension ranked second amongst the top five diagnoses by way of asynchronous telehealth nationally, and in all regions except the South, where it ranked fourth. For January 2023, the Telehealth Cost Corner spotlighted the cost of CPT code 390834, 45-minute psychotherapy. Nationally, the median charge amount for this service One rendered by way of telehealth was $151.44, but the median allowed amount was $95.02. And finally, in other industry news, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that in August and September 2022, 27.5% of the private sector establishments had employees teleworking some or all of the time. Industries with the highest percent of establishments employing teleworkers were 
Information, 67.4%. Professional and business services, 49%. Educational services, 46%. And the wholesale trade, 39%. Data in this release are from the 2022 Business Response Survey data, collected from private sector establishments from August through September 30th, 2022. The survey's topics included telework at establishments both at the time of the survey and before the COVID-19 pandemic. Also, hiring by establishments in July 2022 and job vacancies at establishments at the time of the survey and telework at private sector establishments. The percent of establishments with employees teleworking was somewhat stable over the last year. Nationwide, 22.4% of establishment hired new employees in January of, excuse me, in July of 2022, and 7.3% of establishments increased starting pay, and 5.4% expanded advertising to attract more applicants to newly filled positions. Among the other methods used by establishments to attract more applicants were starting to use recruiters and talent agencies, offering hiring bonuses, reducing the job's qualifications, such as education or experience, expanding benefits, and expanding telework or remote work. Nationally, 7% of establishments took more than 30 days to fill at least one open position. With the percentage of establishments with positions that took more than 30 days to fill varied by industry. And the industries most likely to take more than 30 days were accommodation and food services, followed by healthcare and social assistance, and manufacturing. The industries with the lowest percentage of positions that had been filled after having been open for more than 30 days were natural resources and mining, information, and financial activities. Nationwide, 12.3% of establishments had at least one vacancy open for more than 30 days. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and our other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, Mnookin, Langevin. Thanks for viewing us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.